So hello and welcome to another episode of Flying High with Flutter. I'm your host, Alan Waima. And today I'm with Daria, whose last name I'll let her introduce. She's a tech lead over at Chile. Not in Chile, but at the company called Chile, formerly known as Chile Labs. So just drop the labs part. Uh, welcome. How about you, <laughs> you help us uh, and say your name for us? Yes. Hello, everyone. My name is Daria and my last name is Orlova, which it might be a little bit complicated uh, to pronounce. Uh, so yeah, I'm a Android previously and currently a Flutter developer at Chile Labs, or Chile as we go by now. And Chile is an agency. So but basically what we do is we create mobile apps for the clients. And I'm from Latvia and Chile Labs is also based in Latvia. It's a Latvian agency. So everything Latvian on this side, <laughs> but we do look into expanding um, worldwide hopefully upcoming year and yeah also recently i've been become a mobile tech lead so i also got more tasks to do now in my day-to-day job so probably we'll be talking about this today too when we talk about plug and play development that's a very interesting topic right uh but before we get into that i want to get more into your background because obviously your background must be must have introduced this idea of plug and play developer right we all know that there's not many girls in programming, right? So it's always interesting to hear what what got you into computing. Uh, what, what, you know, when did you just kind of start getting into their interests, this kind of stuff? Basically, I've been always at school interested in math, uh, physics, uh, chemistry, and basically all like natural sciences subjects. And I always thought that I would want to make a career something science related. But then in the last year of school, we had programming lessons. And I realized that this was the missing piece of what I wanted to do because I really liked the problem-solving nature of it and that it has to do with computers. So that's how I made a choice to then continue my studies in the university. And I also got the internship basically from the first day of my studies at university. So my path as a programmer is really like streamlined, school, university, internship, work. And yeah, ever since then, like I've been working only as a programmer in my whole life um, and I really like it. And I really like, yes, um, the technical part of it and not girls not being um, represented enough in technology is uh, something that I care about. I have recently become a woman tech makers ambassador, uh, which a goal of a program is also to bridge this gap of uh, females in technology and one of them is being a representative of, of them and the popularization of technology field and yeah i think it's really important and i hope to inspire more women to follow this path i'm always kind of curious i feel like you know males are quite welcoming of females joining into the group did, did you feel ever unwelcomed or anything when you got into programming I mean, first of all, where did you study programming, right? Because you're kind of like a, for me, I feel like you're, you're kind of a global citizen. You grew up in Latvia. Is that correct? Yeah, I, am, I actually am born uh, in, La- I was born in Latvia. I grew up in Latvia. I finished studies also in Latvia in Riga Technical University. Riga is the capital of Latvia. Uh, we don't have that many universities here. So basically most of them are based in the capital. There were like... I don't know, from 20 people learning at my course, there were like two or three girls only. And the same goes for when I worked in companies, it was always, always dominantly male companies. And even as an interviewer, because I interview people now to like for hiring, I still see less women, a lot less women compared to amount of men applying uh, to interviews. So this, yeah, the gap is still here. Personally, I have never um, encountered like bad relationships or, uh, I don't know, prejudice uh, based on my gender. Uh, but personally, I still have kind of felt like I need to try more to prove myself to be like the professional, not just like a, a girl in tech, but actually a professional to be um, considered like more seriously. Maybe it's my prejudices because I've also grown up with this like background and seeing less women around me. Uh, but luckily enough, personally, no, no discrimination. But I have cases of friends and acquaintances who were not in nice situations. Uh, yeah, so it exists. 
Yeah, I, I have no doubt it exists. It's just I've never seen it personally. And to me, I'm more fascinated. You know, what brought you in this? Because I feel like there should be something like that. But when I went to school, we had, I think there's like about eight people. So my school is very small. In total, it's 2,000 people, 2,000 kids in one school. That's all four years, all four grades. It was very small. So my CS class was about eight people. And I think maybe five on the last one. So of course, it trickles down, right? People drop out. And <clears throat> I just remember we had one girl. And everybody was like so infatuated. Oh, oh, come, come sit over here, sit over here. They all wanted to get to know her. I, I, I always see on Facebook, guys always want to have a programmer girlfriend. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Do you think that makes you a, a, a better than, you know, maybe more appropriate for programmers because you guys share the same subject or you just feel it's just, just a profession? I mean, not a big deal. My husband is a programmer, so I can relate uh, to having a lot of in common with your partner uh, because you share like a field in which you work. Uh, but I think the sheer um, wish to have a girlfriend programmer is a bit um, weird because like I think you want a relationship with a person, not with a role. So yeah, I, I think it's more of a trend than like a real wish. Yeah, for me, I I don't want a girlfriend who's a programmer. I because, you know, I want to be able to to dazzle her. If she knows how to do the Hello World program or whatever, then I feel like I can never, you know, like I have to do more. You know, I don't want to exercise so much. I, I just, you know, just make her feel like I'm doing magic every day. I don't want her to know that it's really not that difficult for some things. You know, especially with Flutter, right? They make a nice Flutter app for her because Flutter is so easy, and she'll have no idea. Sorry, what were you gonna say? Yeah, uh, I mean, you can do magic in many ways, uh, technology-wise and not technology-wise. So I guess it depends on your fantasy. Now, does he also do Flutter or is he in another another kind of industry? Uh, currently, actually, uh, Flutter is where we diverged. Uh, previously, we were both uh, native Android developers. And then I kind of went Flutter way and he went entrepreneur way. And he is now a front-end developer, back-end developer, native developer, basically everything you do in a startup as a CTO. So you code everything, uh, but they don't have Flutter. Uh, and yeah, so that's where we are currently a little bit diverse, but we do have a project planned together. So hopefully that where uh, he will learn Flutter. So you're, you're bringing him over to the dark side, is that correct? <laughs> to the blue side, to be exact. <laughs> dark blue side. Yeah. But yeah, the blue side. It's a good point. Has he has he actually seen it? And what, does he have any opinions? It's always interesting to hear outside people who are not really working with it, what they think. Uh, well, uh, considering we both have a native Android background, we have like the same pains that Flutter, for example, mitigates. Uh, with the declarative UI like being like the biggest one and hot reload and stuff like that. Uh, he does have some experience with React, uh, which has a similar like approach of building UI. So I think he's excited for what Flutter has to offer. That's 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 good to hear. Yeah, I mean it's it's just interesting to hear, to hear that you guys diverge, but at least he can relate, right? So, but that kind of leads me into another another good point. Where did you hear about Flutter, right? Or, or sorry, maybe we can talk a little bit about this part because this is also going to lead into the main topic. So when you graduate, what was the first job or first technology you're working with all the way up until you got into Flutter? Do you mind to give us that background? Yeah, actually, I've been native Android development from kind of my first day. Well, actually, I started internship uh, because they were looking for a QA. Uh, but I did not pass the interview for a QA. They said my logic, my thinking was too logical, more like a programmer, because <laughs> I didn't think about testing edge oh, cases. really? That's a problem? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a problem for QAs, because like the question was, how would you test an input field like where you need to enter a name? And I'm like, well, you enter a name? Obviously, they're like, no, you enter numbers, you enter like different uh, kind of languages and so on. I'm like, all right, uh, I just finished school. I didn't know anything of what I was uh, saying. So, yeah, uh, but they did uh, offer me an internship and they taught me like from scratch uh, as an Android developer because I was working on a personal project of one of the uh, founders of the company. I don't work at the company anymore. Uh, so, yeah, and... He taught me to be an Android developer, and I've been working Android for about four years before switching to Flutter. And when I joined Chile, I also joined as an Android developer. And then, well, in Chile, how I encountered Flutter is because I've been told that we are now trying out Flutter, and we have this new project upcoming in Flutter. Like, are you interested in trying it out? 
uh, and I was like, uh, yeah, sure. And before I knew that like a couple of months before, and I decided to learn Flutter for myself first, because I also had an idea of my own app. And that's how I like to learn. I believe that you better learn with something hands-on when you actually can create something. So I was learning and creating my app and yeah, that's how I transitioned transition to Flutter. It was the first app in Chile. And after that, I always tell my managers, if we have more Flutter, I'd rather do Flutter and not native Android. So please give me Flutter. And somehow it turned out that, yeah, most the thing, most of the projects, especially a new project right now in Chile are Flutter, not native. So that's kind of how I stayed as a Flutter developer up to this day. Oh, that's, that's great. I mean, but when you're learning in school, I mean, you must be learning Java or C or something like that, right? Yeah, actually, we were learning uh, C Sharp with uh, Windows form applications. I think it was something oh, wow. like that. I have yeah, no that's, idea that's why. A yeah. <laughs> that's a long time ago, but it, I don't know how old you are, nor am I going to ask, but uh, that's really a long time ago, if I remember correctly. So, actually, well, not really, I think. I mean, I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm, I'm 25. I'm okay uh, with say, saying my age. Sorry, now you got me curious because they've changed. I, I feel like even though Microsoft is kind of stable, they always like add something new, like WPF or WFP or whatever came out. I might be wrong with the term because I don't. I remember that like we had to drag and drop forms and then we had to code there like on click listeners, uh, stuff like that. I didn't understand that much of programming at the moment, so I might remember stuff uh, wrongly, but it definitely was C-sharp. It definitely was some kind of Windows uh, desktop applications. I have no idea why someone decides to give that to school <laughs> children, to pupils, because I think it's a bit too complicated. But yeah, that's how it started out for me. So. So yeah, but then it was native Android with Java because Kotlin wasn't um, there yet. And then it was Kotlin and then it was Flutter. I'm surprised I didn't look at Xamarin if they want to be like all, all C-sharp place, but that's also fine too. There was a small, small moment when I was working at that first place, uh, the same app, uh, the um, client decided to go also I think it was actually, I think it was a different app, but he did try it in Xamarin. So I was like a little, I tapped into it just a tiny bit, but then I moved on to a different place to work. So that story um, ended there. Okay. That's, that's good to hear. I, from what I hear, Xamarin's a mess, but I, I've never worked with it. So I can never say for sure. I just haven't run into somebody who said Xamarin is great out of everything I've heard of so far. I've heard React Native is good. We had a React Native um heavy guy on here before but that's like also like maybe five percent of people who i've talked to that talk about react native is that they said it's good but uh no it's it's interesting to hear you can ask anna Lyoshenka. she is a uh, flutter gde uh, a great expert and she has like a lot of experience in xamarin and she's has been working with flutter for years now so i think you could ask her about that didn't i just talk with her a couple weeks ago or am I remembering the wrong Anna? I don't know. don't think so. So no offense against anybody, but I've been on a rampage of of doing a lot of uh, uh, recording sessions for Flutter recently. So it's kind of blending together a little bit because I've been doing two to three a week. It's pretty brutal for my, my schedule. Yeah, I can't imagine how you do all of that because, I mean, it's like a lot of online presence and speaking and getting ready. So, like, kudos to you for that. This is that. the nice part. When you're the interviewer, you just ask a little question and then you hope that the guests will just fill up the time for you. <laughs> so it looks like you're working hard. Only the editor is working hard. No, I, I still do some research and everything. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of prep and everything. But I think the actual work it really should be on you guys, right? Because you're you're coming onto the show to tell your side. And getting back to topic... Now, this idea of plug-and-play developer, right? So you you graduated. I mean, you've you've gone a long way, right? I mean, you're still young in your career. I I remember what age you said, but I'll pretend like I didn't hear it because you're still young to me. Uh, you 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 started working uh, as a tech lead. I'm sorry, you started working. You went to a tech lead. Um, and this idea of plug-and-play developer, right? I, I mean, plug-and-play. First of all, I think I remember that back in Windows days when you would have plug-and-play support for USB or something. This is probably way before you started using computers is like XP days. Is this where the idea came from that plug and play word? Or where does this idea from plug and play developer come from? Maybe you can explain it and then talk about the idea of it. Maybe that's the better way. Yeah. So first of all, I would say that I, the, 
the approach approached and then we've like uh, in retrospective we've seen like what we're doing so we kind of coined a term for it so the idea is that uh as i said we are an agency uh we work on a lot of client projects clients come and go some clients return with new scopes um like some are big projects for years some are smaller projects for a couple of months and the thing is that Developers also come and go, some get sick, um, some go on vacation, or as our CEO loves to say, the bus factor, like uh, if someone oh, gets hit by a Yeah, I think that's like a favorite with the executives. Uh, so yeah, basically the idea is that we should structure, and we do, like we actually structure and we should continue doing that, our applications in a way that you can easily plug an existing developer from Chile who uh, knows our practices into the project. And of course, there's always uh, the domain logic, like the business logic that uh, they need to understand. There's like no work around that. But from the technical side, it should be uh, straightforward and obvious for them uh, what to do, like where to add features, how to look for a bug in a, in a new code base and like how to continue working on it so that anytime you plug a developer um, into the project, he starts being productive as fast as possible without like a long onboarding pro uh, process of understanding the technologies, the approaches and so on. So this is kind of how we came up with this architecture that we have and developers switch, pro we usually switch projects at least like every six months. That's the specifics of our company. It's also, um, makes it more, keeps it more fun because you switch projects and you try um, different uh, apps, different clients, different teams. Uh, but you're also able to stay productive like on every project because you are familiar with the overall structure of how it works. Now, yeah, I, I agree that that does keep things kind of fresh and that is uh, kind of nice. But at the same time, what about all of that um, domain knowledge you pick up as you're working on the project that you lose? when you're starting to change projects like this? Uh, well, this is also mostly connected with clients because client can like create an MVP. Then they go to the field, test that MVP, gather feedback from the users, and they can come back like in six months in like in a one year with a new scope or something like that. And you can't just like keep the developers on the bench for like those six, uh, 12 months just because of their domain knowledge. Uh, so we have documentation, we have uh, project managers who like share this, like project product managers who share this knowledge. And of course, some of it gets lost, especially because developers move on. Some developers leave the company, like that's also part of the life cycle uh, of a developer. And this knowledge does get lost with them but it is documented and the way uh, the domain layer of the app is structured, you can also interfere like a lot of logic from there. So okay. that's, that's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever been on a project where we don't get more instant feedback. It's, it's, so it seems like you guys do a very big scope and then work on it for, like you said, six months around and then launch it. Is, is that what I'm understanding the way you guys kind of develop? Well, really, it really depends on the client. We have really different ones. We have uh, uh, the longest one, the oldest one is five years and it's like ongoing development. We have a project that's been in development for five years. They always work on new features. It has been refactored many times to support like newer technologies and approaches. Uh, we also have smaller ones, so yeah, that um, come back only in a while because they're testing out like their hypothesis or something. Or maybe if it's a case when they have a web product, they want to expand it into an app. We expand it, like we make them an app. They go, uh, they test it, they work with it, and only then they return back with the scope. Especially with like bigger companies uh, or government uh, projects, it takes time to make this list of changes, to get it approved by like the higher levels and so on. So it, that why it can take time. Okay, we, we have two questions for you. Uh, the first one, sorry, Damien, I want to skip this one because it's not really on topic, but I, I, I understand that's a good question. Uh, but the second question is really also something that's in my head too, which is how do you document projects in Chili Labs? That's also very interesting to me because there's stuff that people, I mean, yeah, how do you do it that you can transfer all this domain knowledge uh, between people? Uh, well, first of all, uh, we use uh, Jira and Confluence. 
for project management and documentation. So basically, um, there is a folder for each project. And if there is some specific logic, uh, then you document it there. It also comes in form of like backend documentation, depending whether we do the backend or the client. So it comes from client. If there was investigation for some kind of how to integrate, I don't know, payment system or something like that, it also goes into that documentation folder. So yeah. And also one thing that we have started uh, trying out recently, it, um, covers several pain points it's called tech dive in so basically what is tech dive in is when you get a feature to implement as a developer you first um, document everything that you need related to this feature how you're going to implement it like if you analyze several libraries why did you pick the one that you decided to go with and so on and in the end, you propose a solution, technical solution uh, in the form of a document and the other developers, they read it, approve, ask questions, maybe suggest. So it's like kind of this collaboration environment. And once everyone in the team agrees on the solution, then only you start implementing. And this way you also have like a documentation for each feature. So if you ever need to go back in time and understand why it was implemented that way, or like what cases does it cover? You can like find it by the ticket number and just check it out now does this solve all of the problems that happen where you keep changing projects every six months or is there still some issues that you have because i can imagine there would be a lot of things in passing and maybe not everything will be written down no of course of course it's not perfect problems exist especially on bigger projects with uh bigger logic, especially like, for example, there is an app, um, a mobile banking app that has so many cases of how login works, so many cases on like how push notifications work. And sometimes when people switch on that project, it causes problem like a little step backward because you need to gain that knowledge again. Um, but I mean, it's the specifics of an agency, like, it will happen anyway. So there is that small period of time where you need to relearn the logic, but we also learn from those, um, from those places. Like if a question was asked by several developers several times, then maybe we should document it in a better way, in a different way, like with more details or something. So it's an iterative process too. This is a really interesting question. Um, he says it's kind of like RFC ready for comments. Isn't it showing down, sorry, slowing down for every feature to document in big detail? It depends. I mean, like smaller features, uh, like when the feature is straight, like really straightforward, then we skip this process. Like you have to be pragmatic with this approach. If you just um, do it for everything, then it will slow down. But uh, in the end, especially like, when this is done by more junior developers, you solve more questions upfront and you do spend more time upfront, but then during development, like this speeds up and you don't have to redo things or there are not cases that you did not think about. So it's kind of changes the places where like it initially slower, but it faster and probably safer in the long run during development. Then it is like, okay, I'm just going to implement this uh, right now, just how I have it in my head. And then you only start thinking about edge cases and redoing things, maybe because the business logic is flawed in general, because tickets are created by project managers that don't always have all of the technical details. So this step also helps to clarify that before jumping into development. Now, when you cycle in and out people, right? I mean, I hope you're not doing the whole team at one time because that would be, yeah, you shake your head. No, I, I can understand that. So you, you kind of stagger people out. Is it like one per project or a couple, or it just kind of just depends? How does the rotations work? Uh, well, with the size of our project, it's usually in general from developers, it's from one to three developers on a project. Most often it's two. And yeah, usually like one that has experience stays and then the other one switches. And then at some time that other one switches when the second one gains experience. So it's usually never like a whole team if it if it's an ongoing project. Uh, but depending if it's a returning project, like in six months, if the developer that was initially working on it available 
maybe we can put them back to this project. It depends. Oh, it all it always it's like not a definite process. It always depends on the, on the developers, on the scopes, on what project they're currently working on. Because uh, for me, it can al also happen when I work on two projects at the same time. Because I need to help out like with the domain logic on one of the projects while I'm migrating to another project. So this also happens. And also, if the developers um, are staying in the company, even if they're not working at that project, but they had before, you can come up to them and ask questions. I mean, like, that's totally fine. Okay, well, that, that's good that you can you can do that. Um, now, this is a very good question. I think this is something that I, th I think we might have touched on somewhere. I feel like this question we've addressed it, not in this podcast, but when there are messages or something. Um, do you apply the same architecture libraries for every project? your standard toolkit basically uh well this is kind of the plug and play developer architecture that i've been mentioning so while widely yes i mean we have like this base architecture at least in flutter projects i'm talking about flutter projects right now because it's a bit different story with native but flutter projects yes we have an approach we have an approach for overall app architecture. We have an approach for state management and uh, smaller things like maybe localization. Uh, we have even a base project for that, that basically is a already made project, which you can just launch and then style it to your app and start adding features. And this helps to, first of all, create the core of the app. Uh, this, uh, second of all, it does this plug and play developer thing. Uh, where the developers know how the app they're coming to is architectured, even though they may not know the domain of the app itself. Uh, of course, it's also an iterative process because uh, you can try out some approach and understand that it doesn't work and you can't apply it to all of the uh, projects going on. So you change it in the next project. So like the architecture is also an iterative process. It evolves. Uh, but in general, like the big architecture, it is the same for all projects. I can tell more about it. Um, so basically we use clean, clean layers. Uh, I know that in the last time, uh, like, I don't know, time, I hear a lot about clean layers or clean architecture, and it can actually mean different things for different people. Uh, there's so many, um, interpretations of it. For us, it we are naming it by clear architecture levels. So it's domain data and presentation. Uh, it is three levels per app. I know that a lot of people might say that feature layered development or uh, architecture is better for them. Um, might be for them. For us, we find that for our size of project, it works and it does not raise questions where to place what. And it is really helpful helpful for developers. And then we also use Block for state management, specifically the Flutter Block library by Felix. And we also have our own mini class. It's like a sealed class, but because Star doesn't have sealed classes, it imitate a sealed class of uh, delayed result. I wrote a small article about it. It helps us to implement the segmented state pattern because a lot of times in your app, the logic is you go to internet or to database to load something. You need to show the loading process. Uh, you can get an error if something didn't go right, then you can get results. You get the result or an empty state. So you have to handle those four states like a lot of uh, times during your like app life cycle. So we kind of automate those things, abstract, not automate, abstract those things. So, and it works, yes, from app to app. And recently we have also started to extract some of our approaches into libraries, like internal libraries for now. Um, and we use them as components, not just like copy paste code, but as actual components. Now, when you start your projects with, because you sounds like you have a standard toolkit, at least it's like, okay, if we're going to do this, we need this, this library, right? State management, you talked about block, et cetera. Now, have you guys actually made something like a brick? If you know what, if you know what the bricks are? Yeah. Have you got, do you guys have a brick that you use to start a project with? Yeah. Uh, about this, uh, currently our base project is just a GitHub project and it's painful. <laughs> it's painful because you need to check it out. You need to commit changes and so on. 
uh, it's kind of not the best approach. So I have personally started working on a brick that compiles this app. But while I started doing it, I found some other things that I want to like improve in the architecture. So it's also like my mini project as a tech lead to come up with this like a, bit, a little bit updated um, app base and make a brick out of it. But we do have bricks for creating repositories, bricks for creating blocks, like how we structure like page with block relationship. Uh, so we have br smaller bricks for that, but yeah, the brick for the app base is in the process of creation. Now maybe maybe we should cover bricks for a second because they're still kind of cutting edge. I think they're not really so popular. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, they're not even that popular among my team yet. I'm the popularizer <laughs> of the bricks, so hopefully when we have more, maybe we could uh, share like how we structure them and how we create them, why we do that. Uh, but I think it's um, a really great tool, a really great customizable tool that can be like customized to teams and really reused we have bricks in a separate repository and you can just check out that repository and enable the bricks that you need would you mind to actually introduce to the audience what is brick uh brick is a code generation tool uh actually brick is a part the tool is called mason and uh, it also created by a very good ventures by felix the author of flutter block uh, the one that we use for state management. And it allows you to write templates with, I think it's called Mermaid Syntax, um, the templates from smaller part of codes, like maybe one class to whole actual apps. And then you can just, with the Mason CLI tool, you can generate uh, from those templates the actual code that you need in your code base. And this speeds up the development it's the, it's all it's code generation, but not in the term the code generation like um, code generation that you don't touch, but it pre-generates the code for you, with which you then continue to work. Yeah, it's kind of like the a way to generate like a skeleton project. I, I believe Flutter has something similar built in. No, like not 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 the idea of Mason where you can choose which brick you want to use, but I think they have some kind of way. Like when you start your project, you can say like dash dash skeleton, I believe, to generate the skeleton project that they recommend, the style. Maybe. I'm not sure about that, so I can't comment because I don't use the skeleton project from Flutter. I use my own. So, yeah. So I was actually trying to run the command and... <sighs> is it not new? I thought it was Flutter new and you make a new project. Do I not? Do I, is that not? Flutter, Flutter create, create, maybe. To create, yeah. Every, I feel like everybody else does new and then they, they do, maybe, maybe it's just I do something with new all the time. Yeah, so Flutter create. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's dash dash template. Um, you could say skeleton and then that's going to give you that general, um, yeah, this view detail view, Flutter files community best. So it's a files of best practices that they, they believe is. Um, yeah, so it's kind of similar to that, but like you can add in default, you know, like you said, Flutter block and everything else. You can you can customize it also because you can specify parameters based on which you can do different logic in your code generation. So it's really customizable to your needs. And there's also Brick Hub, I think, where you can check out the bricks created by the community and use them uh, if you find something useful because there's like a lot of them, and you can really get creative. One of our previous guests, I think his name is GM Papa, or similar to that. Uh, an Italian guy, he he made a brick about Dart Frog where it generate like REST APIs for you, which is pretty cool. Yeah, Dart Frog is also from the same author, so. <laughs> yeah, they're doing a lot of stuff recently. It's really cool. Okay, I want to get back to this question that I said I was going to ask you earlier. Uh, I don't know, you, maybe you must have wrote about this, uh, but he, he asked, quick lessons learned migrating from Git X to block. Uh, yeah, you need context for that. <laughs> okay. That was a p not intended pun, but uh, I mean that. Hold, hold on, let me just tell you who asked it. Is Damien Diaz? I'm guessing must be a colleague or friend of yours. Uh, a Twitter friend. So basically, some time ago on Twitter, I posted uh, a question. I think it was a question about um, how should I migrate a Jetix project to uh, Block. The reason for this question was because I was auditing an app uh, by a potential client. And the whole app was written using GetX, and there was like 
a lot of the Cadex libraries. I think it was used for everything, for state management, for UI responsiveness or something like that, for navigation, for localization, basically for everything. So you had to kind of learn Cadex to understand what's going on in the project. And for other reasons not related to Cadex, we did not uh, continue with that project. So I can't uh, share anything about how the migration went. So yeah, sorry. But I did have a plan uh, how to do that. So uh, I would start like with migrating only state management and then migrating like the UI and so on in part because it was really entangled. Yeah, that we actually have a project where we we're actually migrating GitX to, to block. It does take time, but you can start with some pieces right away. I, I, I believe there's a couple of sections that are very similar to Flutter block, like the builder pattern or something where you have like that build, you know, I forget what that's called now. Um, but yeah, I remember it does take some time because GitX, you can just do whatever, wherever. And you're like, what, what, what's going on compared to block? It's like, you, you just follow the tree, right? Okay. This one, let me, I can find the provider. If I just go up the tree, it's not too bad. Sorry. Somebody was just outing somebody on the chat on YouTube and saying they should come on the show to talk about shaders. I was just laughing about that. But I mean, how, how was your feeling looking at yeah, GitX? Were you like, did you feel this was actually structured or no? I, I think most people who use GetX maybe don't structure so well. I mean, GetX was one of the things of the app. I think it, the actual architecture of the app was all right. It wasn't that bad. Um, but it did feel like I had to learn GetX to completely understand what is going on there because there was like a lot of GetX that, GetX that, GetX do that. And I wasn't sure what was going under the hood. So like it would be scary to touch anything because I don't know what it does. Um, that was my like first impression. And I don't like when uh, I look at the code base and don't understand what's going on in there and how to fix something. So yeah, that's a red flag. Okay. Um, now, now this is a good question, right? Uh, this came to my mind. Uh, when you're onboarding developers onto the company, I mean, we're talking about GitX, but I think even Block is 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 somewhat popular. But if you compare it to, oh, I'm drawing a blank. I forgot what is the very what is this popular one that River everybody Pod. uses? Riverpod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the you said the popular one everybody knows. Uh, I mean, most people must be coming into the company using Riverpod and they're like, what is Block? And and how do you onboard people onto this? Because you have a new developer, you onboard them to a project, but also to a whole new stack, uh, tech stack that everybody else is using. Like, is that, it's kind of double trouble now, having these kind of two issues. Uh, well, maybe our case is a bit too specific, but because we hire in Latvia exclusively for now, because uh, we only from legal reasons because we hire only in latvia developers are from latvia and flutter is not that popular in latvia so a lot of the time developers come uh without experience in flutter so it's not that hard to teach something like from scratch to understand how we use block and what are the benefits but what i did notice from developers that are not coming from scratch is that they actually use their own technologies like uh, own state management like um homebrewed so a lot of them actually look kind of like block but uh with a lot of problems uh because they're made with streams not understanding completely how to work correctly with streams so there's like problems of leaking stuff and because they already have this concept of what they were trying to achieve with their homebrew block it's not that hard to teach the actual block library um i have not uh, tried Riverpod myself, and I have not hired people who not and not because I don't hire people who use Riverpod, but because no one uh, who I hired used Riverpod. Uh, so I can't share about migrating from Riverpod to Block. Uh, but in general, I feel like uh, Block really helps with decoupling the business logic and UI. And when you explain this to newcomers, and it, you get this the click moment the aha moment and like once it clicks uh then it's like really easy and straightforward to implement features so yeah but the one thing i always hear back is there's so much quote-unquote boilerplate right that is something that's a little bit annoying you have all these classes you got to make up and stuff but at the same time it's nice because you could just say is uh is uh etc you can kind of figure out what you're doing and then once you know is uh, then obviously then then from there you're like okay state dot whatever you 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 have all that autocomplete so that's kind of the nice part too. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not that scared by the boilerplate. First of all, Mason uh, Mason fixes a lot of things, like it creates the initial block and the event and state for you, and you just add the only ones that you need. Uh, but also because this robustness gives me more clarity, so it gives I have less questions in the long run about where to add what and how it works and how it's interconnected, because I can just check, take a look at the block. Um, there's also a GitHub Copilot, uh, which helps you like with copy with methods or anything that you might need. So I don't know, Copilot. I've never tried it. Have you tried Copilot before? Uh, yeah, I actually use it and I use it. It usually helps with like um, things like copy with and such um, boilerplate things. Uh, but also it, it sometimes it reads my mind. Sometimes it acts really stupid. Like it's a really uh, it can do both, but uh, a couple of days ago when I was flying in the plane and I was uh, working on an app and I did not have internet. And that's when I felt that I am slower without Copilot because like it, uh, it does generate um, the thing. I, I, I got used to it implicitly that it's generate some things for me that I was like, I sit and wait for it to generate. Nothing happens. And then like, I'm on a plane, right? That's why it doesn't work. So yeah, it's it's useful for me. Also, it helps with unit tests. Um, like it can generate uh, unit tests uh, really well in my case. So yeah, what I hear is that Copilot basically reads other repositories and learns from those using AI. And I, I saw somebody make a comment like, "I know how bad my code is, so I can only imagine how bad <laughs> others are." And so it, I could just imagine that Copilot would just be a disaster for my project. But I, I don't know. I never tried it. I've heard good and bad things, but I, I guess it's. Yeah, but you have to like, and I mean, you don't just, you read the code that it generates, right? I mean, you can uh, analyze whether it's good code or bad code to use it or not to use it. I mean, it's up to you still. I think it speeds up with, with boilerplate stuff, uh, like with actual logic, of course, I don't trust only it. I think with my head, but with boilerplate, what, yeah, why not? Okay, that's interesting. That, is that actually open so anybody can use Copilot now? I, I know before it was closed off. It's I think it's available for everyone. It's paid now. I have it free as an open source contributor for some. I don't know how GitHub uh, selects people for that because um, yeah, it basically it was paid for me for some time and then it became free because like it says you're an open source contributor. So yeah, but anyone can use it. Somebody's curious about your next article on medium if you have one um yeah um my next article won't be on medium my next article would be on code magic i hope that it will be either later in december or in early january because it's written just waiting for it to be published um don't want to say more right now <laughs> well, that's that's it's good to hear um they're a sponsor of the podcast so i'm happy to hear that you're helping them out yeah uh code magic is great um at work, for uh, historic reasons, we don't we use Bitrise for CI and CD. But for my personal project, I use uh, Code Magic, and it's it's magic. <laughs> it really is really easy to set up. Yeah, I think we're kind of approaching the end of our time. Um, if you were to give like a, I mean, we we talked about this right, but I want to try to condense this into a simple point. If you were to explain somebody what is a plug and play developer, right? What would be like your elevator pitch? You got two to three sentences you need to kind of boil down the important pieces to. How would you describe that to somebody who just needs to know just the facts? Uh, plug and play developer is developer that can be onboarded into a project and start being productive from day one. That's that's a very good <laughs> good part. And 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 maybe just to add on to that one, the pro how to how to make a plug and play developer is it that they're just born like that or that you need to have processes in place or how does that work what are the main pillars of making that happen definitely processes you have to have a system like a system that enables all of this and it's also creation of the system is an iterative process you learn from your mistakes you enhance like it has evolution um we all, uh, we actually didn't speak about it today but uh, we have a lot of things that uh, facilitate this like pull requests and practices and also developers have their like growth roadmap. So uh, all of our developers know what they need to learn in order to like have a specific level and so on. And this roadmap um, 
make sure that we are on the same like level. And if the developer has like level X, it means that he can definitely implement feature X. If not, then he needs to learn it. And this needs to be uh, considered in the next sprint planning and so on. So there's like a whole system of how to develop developers actually in order to be pluggable <laughs> into other projects and in general to be great developers. That's awesome. I, I love the idea. Um, obviously this doesn't solve all problems, but I think it's, it's nice that, cause you know, for every company, usually when you get to a project, you stay there for forever and then you get bored as a developer, you want to try something new. So it's good that you, you find a way to somehow cycle people around. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, the knowledge doesn't get lost, right? You have it written down or you have the people working nearby, you could just ask them. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah, and also when you think, when you write code, when you work on a project and you always keep in mind that other people will be picking it up in the future, people that are maybe not familiar with the code base and the domain logic, it makes you be more mindful of the code that you write so that it's actually readable for people in the future, making the code cleaner, better, and actually written for humans that will be supporting it. So like it also sets this mindset um, when creating solutions that it's not like some code that you write and then you throw it away in a week. Like we don't write code like that uh, because we always think about the developers that will be supporting it in the future. That's awesome. Um, is, is there any anything else that you wanted to say about plug and play developer or any shout outs you want to give before we, we end the, the podcast? Uh, about plug and play development, I also forgot to mention that uh, we have an in-house team of designers and we always work with design systems. So design system also really helps on um, making like the project available for plugging in the developers because you know where to look for elements, how to reuse them, how to component them into uh, pages and so on. So the UI also becomes much easier to uh, implement and even when there are cases when the design is not created by our in-house designers, we always ask the clients to enable design system because it's really important for maintainability. Oh yeah, design systems are huge, especially for maintaining like even just branding or a consistent app. It's it's huge. Uh, that's why I really like looking at like widget book. Have you seen widget book before? Yeah, uh, I, we, we're looking into widget book to try out on some of our projects. Um, so hopefully there will be a couple, not collaboration, but a use case for us. But yeah, what WidgetBook are doing is really, really great. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine that would be, that could also be a tool to help onboard people, right? Like this is what a button looks like. This is what whatever looks like. That, that could be interesting and more interactive than Figma designs and, and Confluence. Confluence, oh my God, I hate that tool. But I hate I that tool. It's importance. Everybody hates it, but it's still important. You need, how can you make text fun? You just can't, unless it's a pop-up book. I mean, I use Notion for personal uh text uh, stuff and I feel Notion is much more easier to use but because Jira is widely used in our company and Confluence is kind of connected with Jira so it's a better um, combination that's why we use it but if we could one day migrate to at least Notion I would be much more happier. You guys should be using uh, AppFlowy have you heard that one before? I think I heard the name, but I don't recall much. Uh, AppFlowy is written in Rust and da -da -da -da, Flutter nice <laughs> so you should take a look at it yeah since you're into flutter you should take a look at it i haven't had a time to play with it because i actually i also really don't like notion <laughs> to be honest app flowy i think i have it downloaded from homebrew but i just haven't played with it yet yeah i'll t i'll yeah i think i have it bookmarked so i'll definitely thanks for reminding i'll take a look at it yeah because since you like notion so much yeah i mean i i, I like it much more than confluence definitely <laughs> It's not hard to be Confluence, but Confluence <laughs> works. It works. Yeah. Sometimes that's enough. I don't know. Notion is, I don't know. I, I Maybe I should give Notion another try. I, I, I just started using Notion for a project a couple of years ago. Um, I was just blown away. It was so different than anything else. I think that's why I hated it. Sometimes when something's too new, you're just like, I don't like this. It's too different. I don't want to think. I just want to get my stuff done and not be guessing how to do it. Uh, yeah. Actually, you, when you said that, uh, I thought about uh i had a similar thought about developers because uh i've been asking devs like in my company who like flutter or don't like flutter and i've noticed that the more developer is experienced in their native platform the less they like flutter and i feel it because they have this like oh i'm already so experienced in my technology i don't want to migrate to something new and it's uncomfort uncomfortable so i don't like it i think 
I think this is something similar. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, there's definitely because also don't forget, you get paid as a developer to deliver working products. And if you keep changing what you're doing and you have to learn a new thing and if that new thing doesn't work uh, according to what you needed to do, then you got to start it back over, right? So it's kind of like, well, I, I know this will work in this one and I have experience in this so I can make it happen. But in technology, why? Never tried it before. Not too sure. People have said things about it. Uh, better not take a chance because who's going to be in trouble in the end, right? Yeah, I mean, when it's something that you are responsible, uh, definitely you need to like consider the pros and cons. And but when it's something that's done in the company, and you definitely know that it works, it's it's a little bit different story. Just my experience with developers. Yeah, yeah, that's another one too. The other thing too is maybe you just don't have enough experience, and so you don't feel comfortable. I, I have that sometimes too. I like I have to do some JavaScript sometimes, and I hate it. Even though I know I can do it, I just don't like it because it's just I just don't do it that much, and I don't want to do it. I don't like it. I have the same with with Ruby on Rails. I mean, I just don't want to touch it ever. Oh, really? I, okay, so I'm the opposite. I rather take Ruby on Rails, even though. I, I do it less. I mean, my problem with Ruby on Rails is that you need to know a lot of how it's configured. You can't just like without knowing all of those conventions to dive into it and be productive. Like you have to learn those conventions first. And that was my problem with it when I was working with it because I had to support an existing project. I w I'm not a Ruby on Rails developer, so it was painful for me. Okay. Yeah. That when, that's what I always hear. If you, f if you fight it, that's <laughs> when bad stuff happens. You're not going to like Rust then. If you've ever had it a try with it, you're not going to like it. Not yet, but I, I do want to give it a try, though, because... You can give it a try, but that one is unforgiving, <laughs> because uh, I'll just tell you right now, everybody the first time, they get beaten by the compiler into into submission. <laughs> and so if you don't like following rules, you're going to hit, you're going to have a horrible time. I, I'm I'm okay with rules. I mean, they exist for a reason, but yeah, we'll we'll check. Uh, we'll check it out. Yeah, if you check it out, check back with me. I'm I'm curious to hear how it goes for you. I just just based on that one comment. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're gonna enjoy it because it's very structured. But you'll find that it's got a lot of rules, and you got to be careful. And you're just gonna, like I said, you're just gonna be beaten. It, it, it's you ever heard of Stockholm syndrome? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like that. Beginning, you're a hostage, and then later on, you're like, oh, I love my 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 oppressor, or whatever you call it, my my kidnapper. It's just like that. It's uh, it's kind of interesting language, but you you love it in the end. For some reason, it it is the the GitHub's most favorite language every year for the last five six years or something. So there's something there. I I hear it's really popular. I mean, it's like really fast and so on. And I see a lot of it in Twitter, especially from Flutter developers too. So and now you have got me intrigued. So yeah, maybe I should take a look at it sooner. I better I better. Shut my mouth because you're going to have a busy weekend checking out your browser tabs and history and bookmarks. Okay. Uh, yeah, we have no more questions from our audience, and I think we're just up to our time. So I appreciate you coming to the show to talk about plug and play developer as a business owner who does Flutter work. I think it's it's interesting because it's, it's one of the things that I worry about is you know how how can I keep everybody interested in their work, but at the same time how can I keep the project going? And I think. Yeah, you've given me some ideas that maybe I'll, I'll have to have a try. So it'd be fun. If you want more details, you can. My DMs are also always open, so feel free. I know that's how we got talking. First of all, yeah. <laughs> if you're talking to me, yes, but <laughs> anybody else in the audience, your DMs are open. Sorry. And with that, uh, again, thank you for your time, and uh, hopefully, I'll have you back on again in the future. Sure. Thank you for having me. It was fun.